Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. There's more than three months until Election Day, and Republican gubernatorial candidate Bob Stefanowski has made big changes recently to his campaign team. Today, where we live, we get the latest in Connecticut's governor's race. Stefanowski is challenging Democrat Ned Lamont for the second time. Political science professor Dr. Jonathan Wharton and Hearst, Connecticut columnist Dan Haar join us. Now, nationally, the Republican Party has split into distinct factions since Trump's presidency. Some leading candidates have welcomed his endorsement, while others have kept their distance. Coming up, we talk more about Republican campaigns and how conservative views have evolved since the Trump presidency. That conversation later. Now, first, we wanted to talk about President Biden's student loan forgiveness program. What was your reaction to the loan forgiveness of 10000 or 20000 based on income and federal loans. Are you eligible? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. For more with us on Zoom is Danielle Douglas-Gabriel, National Higher Education Reporter at The Washington Post. Danielle, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So a lot of attention on this latest uh, program, again, um, offering a $10,000 to $20,000 in student loan forgiveness. But tell us more about who's eligible. Sure. So the income gap is probably one of the first things that most callers will want to know about. So for individuals, if you're making under $125,000 a year, or for couples making under $250,000 a year, you're eligible for $10,000 in federal student loan forgiveness. Now for anyone who had a Pell Grant in their undergraduate career of college, uh, these are grants that are set aside for folks who are, come from households earning typically less than $60,000 a year. Those people are eligible for $20,000 in forgiveness. Essentially the White House used Pell Grants as a proxy to try to get the most help to the folks who uh, certainly come from backgrounds where they don't have the most resources. But given the, the income levels that you just mentioned, this is definitely going to help uh, the middle class, the upper middle class, maybe. In some instances, certainly the White House is projecting that 90% of the people who will be helped by this are earning less than $75,000 a year. So we are definitely talking middle class and in some instances, lower middle class and working class folks. A lot of the borrowers I spoke with uh, to get a sense of how they were feeling, they were blue collar workers, many of them who had started college and had to drop out because they couldn't have finished. And many of them who finished and still weren't able to earn the kinds of jobs that allowed them to pay back their loans fast. Uh, when we look at the parameters of this program, you know, will that mean that, you know, a lot of people will see their student loan debt wiped out? Right now, they're projecting about 20 million people will see their loans completely forgiven under this policy. 
about 43 million of the 45 million who have student loans will benefit from this program based on the income parameters. So that's a lot of people and that's a lot of student loan forgiveness. Now, is it what people had hoped for? Perhaps not. There are a lot of people I spoke with who were really hoping that congressional Democrats were successful in getting the White House to do $50,000 worth of student loan forgiveness. And there are also an equal amount of people who still feel this is the wrong policy, the wrong thing to focus on, and it is unfair to those who either never went to college or who went and didn't borrow or who have already paid back their loans. So when we look at the, the number that they, the Biden administration did decide on, so the average student loan balance is about 20000 or so, Danielle? Yeah, just about. Uh, well, I thought was particularly striking when we think about the number of borrowers holding student loan debt is uh, the number who don't even have degrees, Danielle. What can you tell us about them? Sure. And I think that kind of gets at why the president wanted to do 10,000. So what we know from research, particularly from the Federal Reserve, is a lot of people who are have defaulted on their loans or who are delinquent on their loans tend to have smaller balances around that 10,000 number. And that's in part because they may have gone to college for a year or two and dropped out and couldn't afford to finish. And so this policy in its design is really trying to target that population and help lift them out of this kind of untenable situation with their student loans. We're talking about the latest uh, loan forgiveness program that President Biden announced last week. We wanted to hear from you. Are you eligible? What was your reaction? Our number 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We're talking with Danielle Douglas-Gabriel, who's a national higher education reporter at The Washington Post. So meanwhile, there's also this extension of pandemic era pause on federal student loan payments. For how long, Danielle? Until the end of the year. So this is the seventh extension of this pandemic era uh, moratorium on student loan payments. And I do believe it's going to be the final one. But to be honest, Lucy, that is what the White House has said for the last two pauses. So I can't say for, you know, with certainty, but certainly I get the sense that the White House and the administration had really kind of done the last couple of pauses to give themselves cover as they finalized the student loan cancellation plan. And now with that ready to go, I get the sense that this will definitely be the final one. And why through the end of the year? Do the, the midterm elections have anything to do with this? Well, I'm not a politics reporter, but I, you know, if I were a betting man, I would certainly say yes. I think that that probably is a part of the calculation. But the other issue is trying to get all of this done, right? So 43 million people, the White House has maybe income information for about 8 million of those people so they can get automatic debt relief. The rest of those folks who they don't have the information will have to apply. And that application is supposed to come out in October. People are encouraged to try to apply by November 15th so they could have their balances reduced or eliminated before the end of the moratorium. Uh, That's a lot of work for a Department of Education that is routinely understaffed. And I I imagine that some of that extra timeline is to give folks at the department and the student loan servicers time to really try to move through with this program and help as many people as possible before the end of the moratorium. Mm. Uh, There are people applauding this, but of course, those who hold student loan debt who may have consolidated um, with private lenders, no help from them, Danielle. Unfortunately, no. Uh, While this program is pretty wide in its parameters, meaning that it covers undergrad debt, uh, graduate loans, parent plus loans, covers any kind of um, 
loans that are from this older program called FELL that are held by the department. And the department hasn't made any determination from as much as I know um, on some of the commercial FELL. These are loans that are were made by the government but are held by private entities. But it's likely that they're going to let people consolidate into that program. But for folks who refinance their loans with private companies in order to get lower interest rates, uh, unfortunately, they would not qualify for this. Do you anticipate there being any legal opposition uh, to uh, this loan forgiveness program, Danielle? I would not be surprised uh, if we were to see that. I mean, I've heard from a few folks who have been paying attention to this space that they suspect that either some of the commercial holders of that fell program, uh, they might try to sue to stop this because it might lower their profits, the amount of money they can collect off of that debt. We could also see private lenders potentially uh, sue the government in the sense that the the expectation of loan forgiveness could damage their business. Because why would somebody want to get a private loan when there is a possibility of some other form of debt cancellation down the road so federal loans look more attractive? No one has made any uh, moves thus far, but many of the legal experts I've spoken to said they, they would suspect that anyone would use the grounds of the EPA decision coming from the Supreme Court, which questioned the administ- any uh, federal agency's, uh, I think, authority to make any large economic uh, changes without congressional um, action. So I suspect if we do see something, it could be along those lines. Again, you can join us if you have a question or comment about this latest student loan forgiveness program that the Biden administration announced. Our number, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Danielle, there's also a cost to this for the federal government. You know, how how much will this cost? And again, when we think about, you know, the timing of this, uh, again, when people are dealing with uh, inflation and, you know, other uh, financial pressures, and I'm curious if you can give us some context there. So on Friday, the White House said that they suspect that the program will uh, cost about $24 billion a year over the next decade. Uh, And a lot of that is just the government kind of foregoing the collection of loans that it had already booked as revenue coming in. And as far as the inflationary factors, now there are there are folks who are make some great arguments on both sides. A lot of people are saying, well, if we are worried about people now going out and spending a lot and further driving up inflation, the fact that folks have not had to make payments on their student loans for the last two and a half years, I think we've already seen any kind of real um, consumption coming out of that pause happen. So this isn't like people are going to get $10,000 checks to just go spend. They're they're really just going to see their their payments uh or their balances lowered. So that's that's something to take into in consideration, but certainly this will add to the deficit. There's no ways around that and the White House has said that the inflation the inflationary impact they suspect will be nominal if not marginal compared to the amount of inflation reductions that uh, measures that they've taken thus far. And, you know, there, there's also the you know other side of looking at this from, you know, this is a Band-Aid approach. You know, what does this do uh, to curb the increasing cost of higher education or even how loans are given out? Um, any pressure on private lenders and under, helping people understand uh, the, the conditions of a loan so that, you know, people aren't left with such, you know, uh, crushing debt uh, and not able to even, you know, build wealth, Danielle? 
So I think, you know, the White House would say this policy isn't happening within a vacuum. There are a lot of other measures that the administration is trying to uh, put into action in order to address some of the deficiencies of the federal lending program. Now, as far as the cost of higher education, not not so much. I mean, the president has said that he wants there to be greater transparency in the kind of outcomes that colleges provide for their students to give them a better sense of what's worth it in terms of the value. As far as the repayment system, alongside this plan, the president highlighted briefly uh, a repayment plan that is a proposed rule right now, probably won't take effect till next summer, whereby people pay undergraduates in particular could pay like 5% of their discretionary income towards their student loans. And after 10 years, if they have balances less than $12,000, they can see uh, the remaining balance forgiven. Now, there are already four similar plans in place, but with a much longer timeline to forgiveness and a different measure and calculation of what's discretionary income. If that plan goes through as planned, it could be really helpful in, in making sure people can manage their debt, not go into default and, and get to forgiveness at a more reasonable pace for a lot of borrowers who have been struggling with that. Uh, Lily uh, called in from Griswold and shared this, uh, her little brother is suffering from loans. And nobody mentioned that to millennials, that a lot of loans are predatory. They switched the terms. Lily says, I'm Gen X and interest rates terms changed and many families didn't read the fine print. Interest alone is so high, people can't pay them off. I wonder if you could respond to that, Danielle. So certainly the interest on some federal loans are pretty high, particularly grad and parent plus. We're talking over 6% generally, which is much higher than what you could have gotten on a mortgage or a car loan for the longest. Student undergraduate loans, a little bit different. Uh, They tend to be a lot lower. Historically, they're at uh, some of the lowest that they've been in, in generations, but for a lot of families who are having to do parent plus loans, grad loans, or even for folks who have all three, which is very common, um, then yes, that interest is exceedingly high sometimes. And I think that's why you've seen a lot of people refinance their loans into the private market so they could get lower interest rates. Unfortunately, they lose the benefits of the federal program, uh, particularly at a time like this. We can't forget to mention the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program, which was frustrating. I I know people are still trying to to get through this, uh, Danielle, and some wondering if you could um, just update us on where this stands and and in terms of, you know, this other process for this new forgiveness program, you know, (laughs) some of the hiccups that we may anticipate here. Sure. So public service loan forgiveness is a program that is meant for people who work in the public sector. You make 120 qualifying payments over 10 years, keep working for the public sector, and the balance is supposed to get forgiven. Now, it's an exceedingly complicated program the way Congress wrote it, and lots of people have had missteps along the way. A lot of people were rejected when they applied. So this past year, I think actually no, a year ago, the Department of Education said they were going to do a waiver. Uh, allowing folks to get credit for any payments they made, regardless of the plan they made it under, regardless of if it was a partial payment. There's all sorts of kind of exceptions that really allow uh, folks to get more credit for towards loan forgiveness. It's been tremendously successful for a lot of people who have been able to, to get that. Now, the deadline to apply for this waiver is October 31st. There's been a lot of congressional pressure to get an extension. I don't get the sense right now that we will see an extension coming on that particular program. So anyone who thinks that they could be eligible, I would encourage them to try to apply as quickly as possible uh, to take advantage of this.
You've been hearing Danielle Douglas Gabriel here on Where We Live, National Higher Education Reporter at The Washington Post. Danielle, do we miss anything? Uh, I think you covered everything. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thank you uh, for coming on the show again. Thanks for having me. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public. Now, coming up, we're going to pivot to Connecticut's gubernatorial election. Republican Bob Stefanowski is challenging Democrat Ned Lamont for the second time. And with more than three months to go until Election Day, Stefanowski has made big changes to his campaign team and may be suing a minor party over a chance to get a second line on the November ballot. We break it down right after a short break. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Healthcare. ECMO is a leading edge, life saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, the gubernatorial race in Connecticut is heating up with about 70 days to go before Election Day. Republican Bob Stefanowski has garnered a lot of attention recently, not because of any campaign zingers towards his opponent, Ned Lamont, but because of recent changes to his campaign team and some drama involving the Independent Party in Connecticut. For more, joining us now on Zoom is Dan Haar, associate editor and columnist at Hearst Connecticut Media. Dan, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Good morning. Great to be here. Also with us, Dr. Jonathan Wharton, who's a professor of political science at Southern Connecticut State University. Hi, Jonathan. Morning, Lucy. Good morning, Dan. Our listeners can join us uh, well, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Dan, I mentioned about 70 days before Election Day. There's some big changes on Bob Stefanowski's campaign team. Tell us what they were, and is it surprising given the timing of the campaign season? Uh, It's a little bit surprising. It signifies that all is not ideal in the world of Bob Stefanowski's campaign, either in fundraising or in internal polling or both, or they just decided strategically that they didn't like the direction of things. It was a two-part change. On August 1st, a a campaign manager who was not a public figure, uh, Dan Carter, the former state representative who ran for Senate some years ago, a few years ago, He exited the campaign and went to work for the party. Uh, And Patrick Sasser, well known for being the uh, Stanford firefighter who spearheaded the grassroots campaign to stop tolls very successfully. He ran a very good grassroots campaign, as you recall, 2019 and again in 2020 at the start before the pandemic. He became the campaign manager. Separately, three weeks later or two and a half weeks later, 
Liz Karantowicz, who was the strategy consultant for Bob and who was really everywhere with him and, and was acting as his his press person and his his uh, functioning as his scheduler as well, uh, left the campaign over strategic differences. So it's a two-part thing. Pat Sasser did not replace Liz, but it doesn't look good regardless of what the steps were. Jonathan, what's your take when you think about uh, the, the, the former uh, staff members and uh, this new strategy that Bob has started? Well, I think you might remember, and your listeners and Dan as well, that when you know Bob Zepanowski initially ran back in 2018, he had a lot of people from outside Connecticut. And quite frankly, I was pretty much a critic about that. Um, you know, because I was involved with Kirk Miller's campaign at the time for state controller. So we were in the room a few times discussing this out. Part of the problem was back in 2018, there were so many candidates running for governor and even lieutenant governor that it took a lot of consultants and Republican specialists off the bench in Connecticut. So, you know, Bob Sadonowski kind of leaned more on, you might remember Pat Truman, who was the campaign manager from Virginia. Oh, I remember. On the campaign <laughs> there, right. And then we had other people who were also from uh, Ohio and Kentucky and a lot of the other states. This time around, obviously, you know, Bob was heading more in the direction of getting people like Liz. And I don't want to get also Dan Carter because, you know, he was also the campaign manager. Um, and so he was interested. He did hear these concerns about bringing on more Connecticut uh, people. And so that is the case. I don't know what kind of led to this. I mean, a lot of people have asked me, you know, why now and what's going on. But we often I see in a lot of campaigns changes that do take place. Now, maybe this is a little late in the season because obviously it's post-primary. Um, but, you know, I oftentimes with a lot of candidates, they tend to have an inner circle of people, usually two or three people who are really close uh, and even not formally part of the campaign. So I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case with Bob Stefanowski. Mm -hmm. When uh, Dan was mentioning, you know, this could be uh, due to funding, internal polling, or just wanting a, a different strategy, you know, what's your take on that, Jonathan? Yeah, this happens frequently, I think, with campaigns more than I think people realize. Uh, it is unusual that it's multiple campaign people, you know, it's, we're dealing with a handful of them as opposed to usually one or two. Um, but I, I see this happen quite frequently with a lot of campaigns and, and even on the Republican side. Sometimes it's just a matter of messaging and what directions they want to head in. Um, and so you see shifts and changes that happen. And sometimes it's oftentimes right after primary, which is certainly the case here, or even what happens after convention. <laughs> <laughs> back in May, for example. Uh, Dan, do you see any correlation to, to these changes on Bob's team uh, happening right after Leora Levy won the GOP primary? Uh, well, it's possible. Uh, Liz Karantowicz was close to Themis Claritus. Uh, she was not involved in that campaign, in that in that unsuccessful campaign. I think if she had been, the, the outcome might have been a little bit different. Um, but she was, uh, she is close. So I don't, I don't see a straight line correlation. It's the sort of thing where a domino drops over here and somebody thinks about this. I want to make the point that one thing that's not going to change for what Jonathan just said about outsiders versus people from Connecticut working with Bob on his campaign is he ran in 2018 as a miserable grouch. Uh, and that's actually not who he is. He's kind of a funny, dry humored type of guy. And for whatever reason, they determined in 2018 that that wasn't ho who he was going to be. Uh, but that is who he is in this campaign. He's a much more personable person. One can disagree with what he's saying all they like, and they can talk about his background or anything else, as they do with any campaign, any candidate. But he's more of a personable candidate this time around, and that's not going to change heading into the fall. But heading into the fall, uh, Dan, you know, your take on whether, you know, Bob um, is trying to attract more conservative voters who uh, may have voted for Trump when we see the, the base that came out for Leor Levy. 
Yeah, he's in a bind. Uh, there's no question because he knows that if he plays Trump card, he, the Trump card here, and and you know, big Donald Trump, he's what what will happen to him is what will is what is going to happen to Leora Levy, which is she's going to get somewhere between 39 and an outside chance of 44 45 percent. That's the threshold for the hardcore hard right in Connecticut, and he knows he can't win with that. And yet he needs those votes, so he's in a little bit of a tough position. He's not fundamentally a Trump type of person in the way that Leora became uh, somehow magically once Trump became president. Uh, but he is a, a conservative economically, and he uh, he certainly agrees with some of the things Trump did. But he just doesn't want to play that card, and he certainly doesn't want Trump coming here for him. Mm-hmm. Jonathan, what what do you think? Well, that, that what Dan brings up is, is a concern for really anybody who's trying to run for office. You know, you brought into the intro the fact that the Republican Party splintered in different directions. And of course, I think you remember, I've said that for years. It's kind of interesting that now we're hearing from our governor, Ned Lamont, saying that a couple weeks ago, right after the primary, Leora Levy's result. You know, the party is typical of parties where you have different factions. I mean, Democrats are no different either. We just tend to forget or overlook that there are all these different dimensions and directions where it's going in. Uh, certainly the higher turnout among Trump supporters was apparent. But one thing I don't want to overlook in Connecticut is the majority of us are unaffiliated mm-hmm. voters. And so Bob and quite frankly, even Ned Lamont's going to have to rely on these unaffiliated voters because they're the majority of voters in Connecticut. So that's going to matter in November. They've got to find a pathway of really cutting through and getting them all on board, just like it was the case back in 2018. Thank you for bringing that up, Dan. So when we think about the unaffiliated, you know, what is it about Bob Stefanowski that could appeal to them? Well, he's, he, he represents change from, d- depending on how you want to count, at 12 years or 40 years of, of Democratic control in the state of Connecticut. And that's he believes that costs are too high here because of Democratic Party politics. It's not that simple. But on the other hand, costs are high because of some Democratic policies. For example, uh, paid family and medical leave is a half a percent off of most people's salary. And it pays for something that a lot of people think is a worthwhile program, but nonetheless, it's a cost. And he's looking at things like that. I just named that as one example. I could name others. And so that's his appeal. Uh, There's no question the numbers are there. Hypothetically, Trump got more than 700,000 votes in Connecticut. uh, But then again, Biden got more than a million. Bob needs 700,000 to win. So if he gets every Trump voter, and if Stefanowski, I'm sorry, if the governor uh, Lamont's voters don't all come out, that's a path to victory for Bob. You're hearing Dan Haar here on Where We Live, associate editor and columnist at Hearst Connecticut Media, as we talk about the Connecticut gubernatorial race. Also with us, Dr. Jonathan Wharton, professor of political science at Southern Connecticut State University. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And so a Labor Day almost here, and we think about uh, Pat Sasser again, um, helping with the No Tolls grassroots campaign, uh, defeating that. Uh, Dan, uh, what do you expect to see uh, in the next a few weeks uh, when we think about this grassroots uh, level that hopefully Bob is trying to reach? A lot more of what we saw in New London, where uh, Bob Stefanowski came out swinging. Nothing new. He didn't He didn't name anything new, but it was a little bit of a harder hit on uh, the alleged or, or supposed ethics violations in or ethics concerns in the Lamont administration. Uh, and it wasn't so much what was said. There was nothing new. It was all the same four things, all of which Lamont has answered to, but it was a style, and I think we'll see more of that. We'll see more of Bob uh, maybe holding rallies, that kind of thing. Um, I don't think it's any dramatic change, but it's a, a more out front 
style. And what do we, what do you think about the, the the ads that we may see? I should mention that uh, Stefanowski's campaigns hired Jamestown Associates, which I believe uh, there's a gentleman who's a veteran of the 2016 and 2020 Trump presidential campaigns. Well, he's got to be very careful going all negative because uh, the, it, 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 when you go negative, for example, on the economy being terrible, uh, it doesn't ring true. The Connecticut economy is not as bad as the Demo- as the Republicans say it is, as Bob is saying it is. And if he's all negative and talking about, you know, Governor Ned Lamont running Connecticut into the ground, that's just simply not going to ring true, let alone the fact that it's it's going negative at a time when you need to be balanced. Mm-hmm. So I don't I suspect think- he's going to do I don't suspect he's going to do that. I think he's going to stay the course on his ads. And I don't know what the change is about there, but it's not going to be a guy hitting all hard negative. Mm. Jonathan, well, what's think, your take? I think two things. Uh, one, you know, we're going to see this campaign ad season to November go. It's going to be really interesting, right? Just be inundated. We're already seeing this with the ads, especially on TV. Expect more of that. I mean, we're not even in September yet. And you know there's going to be an onslaught, uh, you know, after Labor Day and certainly into October. So expect a lot of money coming from these different committees that exist out there that really at both sides are, are going to do this. We're already seeing some of that. Um, and, and one thing I don't want to exclude too, is that, you know, Ned Lamont is the most popular democratic governor right now in, in the United States. So, you know, how do you chip away at something like that? Right. Um, you know, as Dan said, you know, Bob is a very approachable and likable guy. Um, and he can sometimes come off as a, I wouldn't say, you know, grouchy as, as, as Dan would say, maybe a bit curmudgeonly, um, but tell me a new Englander who isn't. And then, you know, but you get to know him. He's a very personal guy. Same, the interesting thing with Ned is that, you know, he's quirky. I mean, we all know he's, he's you know, um, can be awkward at times, but he can certainly be agreeable too. So I'm going to be kind of intrigued to see what is the Connecticut voter thinking of all these ads and how they're going to be portraying both candidates. And will that get people to turn out in November, right? Because sometimes it can be a good or bad thing to, to go either all negative or try to play up uh, some of these, you know, uh, popularity ratings. Mm. Thinking about the money that's going into these campaigns, uh, Dan, of course, uh, both of these, uh, uh, those running, uh, both Lamont and Stefanowski, wealthy guys, but there's also these uh, these PACs uh, that are involved. Uh, I'm looking at this flyer I got in the mail from the super uh, PAC, Parents Against Stupid Stuff. You know, How much of this uh, do you think will impact uh, the, the campaign? Well, yes, that's one of them. The other is CT Truth PAC. And the Democratic Governors Association on the Lamont side is going to kick in a significant amount of money. But I think you don't want to make the mistake of believing that these two gentlemen are of equal wealth. Mm -hmm. Uh, Governor Ned Lamont has an unlimited amount of money. He can spend 30, 40, whatever it takes. It it simply doesn't matter. It's just a number. It's a shape of a figure on a piece of paper. Bob Stefanowski has executive earnings money, which is a lot. It's more than I have, but it isn't enough to run a campaign. He still needs to fundraise. He still needs outside funding to match what Ned Lamont will spend. Uh, when we look at the, the last election, uh, the governor, Ned Lamont, defeating Stefanowski by 44,000 votes. So let's talk about where minor party endorsements come into this and what happened with the independent uh, party, uh, Dan, uh, now that the Stefanowski campaign uh, may be suing. Uh, what, what can you tell us about uh, this second endorsement that he was hoping to get and, and what's happening now? The 30-second story is that in each of the last two of the previous two governor elections, the independent party backed the Republican. And Bob Stefanowski was hoping that would happen again. It yielded 25,000 votes last time, which wasn't enough to make up the difference, but it was a significant chunk. 
He needs that this time. I ran into him on uh, Saturday at an event, and I tried six different ways to get him to say how badly he needs that independent party. They denied it. They have their own can candidate, Rob Hodling. It was a tie, and through a maybe questionable event on Tuesday night, the chairman of the independent party of Connecticut simply decided to break the tie, not by voting, but saying the winner is Rob Hodling. Bob Stefanowski, Stefanowski is saying he's going to bring that to court. As of uh, my colleague Ken Dixon tells me, as of this morning, that hasn't happened yet. We expect it to happen. But the problem is that court judges are very, very slow, as Jonathan can tell you, to overturn party decisions. Jonathan? Oh, yeah. I'm not. This is very bizarre. I mean, Dan, your, your summary <laughs> right a few days ago. Wow. It's, it's just surreal, right? Because the Working Families Party is also giving the support to Ned Lamont, which shouldn't be so shocking. That's what we expected. But as Dan said and even highlighted in his piece, you know, this is one of the things where a lot of the, you know, both major parties kind of rely on that cross-party endorsement. I mean, to me, just as an analyst or even as a voter, it's not the biggest deal in the world, but it is for candidate get your name on the ballot twice. You know, it's all about, you know, ballot real estate. And so, um, you know, and even I said that in my column about the whole thing with what happened with the primary on the Republican side for, for CT News Junkie on, on Friday. Uh, you know, these endorsements, these cross-party uh, support, it, it matters. But that, you know, um, convention on Tuesday was just really bizarre. And then to add to all this was the reception prior at, at Bob Zabonowski's house to really try to woo them. And then what people forget is that there was more than one candidate running, right, on the independent party. There were, there were actually a couple of them. So there were already internal divisions within even the independent party in terms of who they were going to go with, let alone having the chairman vote twice. Uh, Dan, Jonathan referenced your piece where you talked about the, the cross-party endorsements and thinking about Lamont being endorsed by the Working Families Party, you know, that could be used, uh, Stefanowski could use that to paint uh, Lamont as a um, pretty progressive, even though, you know, he's not, he's someone that has not agreed to raise taxes on the wealthy. He already has used it the day after the endorsement by the Working Families Party. It was not unexpected that the party would endorse or not cross-nominate uh, Governor Lamont, but it, it does put the governor in a little bit of a position where he can't quite yell, for example, the Trump card, right? Mm -hmm. He likes to say, in, or his campaign likes to say in announcements that Bob Stefanowski is really Trump in disguise. This, uh, taking the Working Families Party nomination takes a little bit of that edge away because he's not a pure play centrist Democrat in the on the ballot anymore. I don't want to make too much of it because, again, as both the governor and the party, Working Families Party people say, they work together in the areas where they work together, minimum wage, paid family and medical leave, additional pay for significant uh, for state workers, that kind of thing. And they disagree on taxes for the rich and on really large programs for the poor. Right. It is interesting, Jonathan, uh, that we have heard from uh, Ned Lamont's campaign tying Bob Stefanowski to Leora Levy because at one time he had donated money to her. And she's definitely uh, you know, been endorsed by uh, Donald Trump and is embracing it. Yeah, I, I've been trying to follow around just, you know, on the sidelines in terms of figuring out um, that support that, that went towards uh, Levy early on. Right. And, and certainly there was not any financially and political support towards uh, Themis Clardis, who was the endorsed candidate um, for the party. So I, I don't quite know where, how, and why uh, Bob Stefanowski landed more with Levy um, than even with Themis, or even getting in the middle of it, right? Because technically, campaigns well, try not to get in the middle of 
<laughs> uh, so looking for the primaries of, of other ballot races, including the one that just happened a couple weeks ago. So that that was kind of intriguing to me, just as somebody as, as an observer, if that makes sense. In early 2018, uh, late 2017, Bob Stefanowski was an unknown, hadn't even voted in 20 years, not a guy anybody knew who he was. And he, he, he won ultimately the Republican nomination by spending money early, lots and lots of it. By the time the convention came around, Mark Bowden won. Mark Bowden was too far behind. That money came from Leora Levy. Bob Stefanowski owed her that favor. Good point. And I want to also add, Dan, that, you know, when things were kind of on the fritz with the state party, uh, Leora Levy came through with her donors and supporters, you know, um, right after Jay Romano's, you know, the former um, uh, uh, director, uh, executive director, and like former chairman of the state party. So that was key last year, too. I'm sure the party wishes they could have her money without her personality on the ballot. <laughs> well, look, you know, everything comes with baggage. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll leave it. We'll leave it there. Thank you, uh, Dan Har, associate editor and columnist at Hearst, Connecticut Media. Also with us, Dr. Jonathan Wharton, associate professor of political science at Southern Connecticut State University. And this note for our listeners, where we live, we'll have Bob Stefanowski on next week, the Tuesday right after Labor Day. And Ned Lamont will be here on that Thursday, September 8th. We hope you join us for those conversations. Thank you, Dan and Jonathan. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you. You're listening to Where We Live. Coming up after the break, we talked about the Republican Party splitting into distinct factions since Trump's presidency. Some leading candidates welcoming his endorsement, others keeping their distance. Coming up, we're going to talk more about Republican campaigns this year and how conservative views have evolved since the Trump presidency. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've spent some time talking about Republican candidate for governor Bob Stefanowski's campaign against Democratic incumbent Ned Lamont. Uh, given what we're seeing nationally in the Republican Party, you know, how do GOP statewide candidates run uh, their races in a Democratic-controlled Connecticut? How do they appeal to voters, especially the largest group of voters in our state, the unaffiliated voters? Joining us now is political scientist Dr. Patricia Krause, who's practitioner in residence at the University of New Haven. Patricia, welcome to our show. Uh, thank you. Good morning, Lucy. So talking broadly, when we think about the Republican Party uh, changing uh, since uh, the end of Trump's presidency and, of course, the insurrection, uh, give us some context here. Well, I think that, you know, you've seen not so much that it's changed, but that things have come to the surface that were sort of below the surface for a long time. Um, views that people had that they maybe weren't comfortable expressing um, once Trump became president and now that he's left office, um, that people have become more comfortable talking about things that, you know, we just didn't talk about in public before. So I think that what you're seeing is um, <clears throat> people are feeling more free to express opinions that weren't necessarily popular before. Um, and I think that that's come from you know, Trump just being so out there about these views and not being concerned about, you know, um, insulting a group or hurting someone's feelings. And, and I think that's what we're seeing with the Republican Party today. 
Um, without Trump loyalty, though, you know, what is the way forward for the Republican Party? You know, what would happen if, you know, they turn their backs on him? Um, well, you know, I think I think the 2022 election is going to tell us what's going to happen because, you know, elections are about winning. Um, and Mitch McConnell, who had, you know, he was certain that they were going to either be able to hold on to what they had in the Senate or even you know, take control of the Senate is now not so sure about that. I think if you see the party losing elections because of Trump candidates, then I do think you're going to see the support for him wane going forward to 2024 um, because you can't you can't afford to lose elections um, with the party so close these days and you you know politics is about power and if you lose that power then then you have nothing in politics so i think you're going to see his support wane if it turns out that he's costing them seats and, and that's really the bottom line when you're talking about elections mm. what does this mean for moderate republicans when we think about connecticut republicans or even young republicans with the way the party um you know has shifted there are as you mentioned uh, certain things that people have embraced that you know maybe was not part of the republican party at one point yeah and i think you're talking about two very different groups there you know moderate republicans i think there's more of them than we know because the voices that we are hearing in the republican party today are the ones that are on the extreme um and you know they're not necessarily the largest group they just happen to be the loudest group so when you're talking about moderate Republicans, I think they are out there and I think you're going to see them come out in the elections. Um, in terms of young Republicans, you know, the younger Republicans that I see, and, and I see these kids in my class every day, they are your typical Republicans. So they're, you know, fiscally conservative, but they're becoming more socially liberal. Um, so the majority of them support things like gay marriage. You know, they they support LBGTQ issues. Um, and I'm thinking, you know, when you talk about moderate Republicans, if you're looking at Congress or even if you're looking at Connecticut, you're looking at people who may still be against gay marriage. They may not support LGBTQ issues, but they're also not on the extremes like your sort of Marjorie Taylor Greens or Matt Gates type Republicans. So I think, you know, it's going to depend on whether people want to sort of bite the bullet and support the party or whether they just decide that they've had enough, that this, these aren't the people that they want representing them. So I think it's going to be interesting to see who comes out to vote and, and who they end up voting for um, or that they stay home. You know, you've got some of these more extreme Republicans who are simply telling people, um, don't come out and vote. You know, if you can't vote for a Trump candidate, then, you know, or you can't trust the elections, which is the biggest problem right now, then stay home. And, and that's going to hurt Republicans more than anything. I brought up the insurrection earlier. So when we think about, yeah. you know, right wing extremist groups and their actions, you know, how does this influence the dynamics of the party? Again, it's, you know, it depends on sort of which group you're talking about. Um, there are people that still don't even want to call it an insurrection. Um, so you have this group of people who have downplayed it from the beginning. 
And there's people who will say, you know, this wasn't an insurrection. This was just people expressing their views. Um, it depends on, again, how people view that and whether whether it's even still in people's minds by the time we get to elections. You know, the, the American electorate is notorious for having a very short memory. So, you know, how much of that is brought out in the, the 2022 campaigns, um, you know, it, it, I'm not sure how much impact it, it will have um, on the actual election because you have things like, you know, the overturning of Roe versus Wade now that they can talk about. Um, you know, you were talking earlier about the student loan forgiveness. That's something that will work in the Democrats' favor. So, you know, it's not something I believe we should be forgetting about. Um, it's such an important part of our history now. But I'm not sure that that's something that's going to be constantly brought up in the 2022 election because the Democrats now have other issues that they can latch onto that I think may be more effective um, in overcoming that. And I also think you've seen, you know, a lot of these Republican candidates um, that they've moved past it. They're, they're not even talking about it at all. So I don't know how much of an issue that now becomes in the 2022 elections. You're hearing Dr. Patricia Krauss here on Where We Live, a practitioner in residence at the University of New Haven. She's a political scientist. As we talk about uh, Republican campaigns and the Republican Party, you can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. And I wanted to talk more about the makeup of candidates because at, at, at one point in time, when we look, when people uh, viewed candidates, you know, you looked at their education level. And now you see, you know, candidates, you know, widely sharing misinformation, uh, the way the louder voice, uh, you know, of course, gets the attention, not necessarily the one uh, that is well-informed. And so I'm wondering if you can talk about that. Yeah, and I think, you know, that that is extremely important. Um, you know, I don't think you should be allowed to work in our government system if you don't understand how our government system works. Um, and I talk about this with my students all the time that, you know, there should be some sort of civics test before you can even run for government. Um, which I know is is not something that would go over well in this country, but you can't represent the issues if you don't understand the issues. Um, and I do think you see a lot of people who are, you know, I'm not saying that you have to have, you know, a PhD to be able to work in government, but you have somebody like, you know, Bobert or Marjorie Taylor Greene, who really do not seem to understand the basic issues of the constitution. And that I do have a problem with that you're promoting things that, like you said, some of it's just flat out misinformation. And what we know about the American public is that the, the level of political knowledge just within the American public is extremely low. So if you have people who are spouting nonsense and as an American citizen, you're not really understanding how the government works and you believe the nonsense, then, you know, this leads to people that I don't really think should be holding public office, holding public office. Um, and, I, you know, as a political scientist, I understand that this is the way our system works. You know, the whole notion of, you know, anybody can grow up to be president, which we learned, um, you know, in the last election cycle, that... I don't want that to change. I don't want to discourage people from running from office, but 
I do think we have to have some sort of standards there that you, you have to understand what you're talking about in order to talk about it. Um, and there's nothing wrong with, you know, having an opinion, but the problem is that the, my biggest issue is, is social media and the internet spreading opinions that are clearly misinformation. And unfortunately, this is where the majority of people are getting their information from now is the internet um, or Twitter or Instagram or whatever, wherever it is you're having these conversations. Um, and it makes it too easy now to put out misinformation. And that I think is, in some sense, is undermining sort of our democratic system because people can't distinguish between false information and, and real information in terms of elections. Before we run out of time, Patricia, you know, we touched on the Connecticut's governor's race and recent moves by the Republican candidate. I'm wondering if you can uh, give us your observations. Well, I think, you know, everything that from what I listened went with Jonathan and Dan that, you know, Stefanowski definitely has an uphill battle with um, trying to beat Ned Lamont. And, and I think it's right. He needs to pivot away from any sort of extremist views. But then you also have this group of people who recently elected, you know, Levy to um, as the Republican candidate. Um, it's, a, it's a fine line you have to walk in Connecticut. We're, we're a very blue state. We always have been. But we have those pockets. You know, I live in the, the fifth district and it's one of the few competitive mm -hmm. districts in the state of Connecticut when it comes to um, congressional seats. So, you know, I think that he, he's making the right choice in doing that. But I also agree that, you know, he can't go really negative on Lamont. It's not just about, you know, the economy, but Connecticut is one of the top states in terms of how we handle the pandemic. And, you know, it's hard to criticize Lamont when he kind of got us through probably one of the most difficult times in Connecticut history, at least most more recent history. So I think it's going to be interesting. I, I think Levy is going to lose her race. Um, I think, you know, Claridis was probably going to, or Claritis, sorry, was probably going to lose her race as well. But I think of all of the candidates, she had the best shot at even making a dent in Blumenthal. So, you know, Connecticut, I think when all is said and done, when all of these races are, are completed, we're still going to be a blue state. Um, and Dr. Dr. Krauss, we'll have to leave it yeah. there. Dr. Sorry. Patricia yeah. Krauss, again, no problem, who is a practitioner <laughs> in residence in political science at University of New Haven. Thanks for your perspective. We appreciate it. Thank you. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Test Terrible. Thanks to Gene Amatruda on the board today. We'll be back tomorrow.